The sun is down, the streetlights are on, and you're listening to Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. Troll you restless sleepers and midnight creepers, bleary-eyed truckers in the graveyard shift, this is Brennan Store, and you're listening to Largely the Truth. Whether you're staring at a screen or the lines on the road, all is well, and for the next little while it's going to stay that way. Because I'm here, you're there, and together, we're going to explore the night. Welcome back, folks. This is Largely the Truth. I am your host, Bren Store, and this is a show where I find some of the most interesting people I can, sit down with them, and learn a little bit about their world. Now, of course, as I'm recording this, Halloween is creeping up. It's about uh, maybe a little less than two weeks away, and so in keeping with that spirit, Tonight's guest is someone who specializes in scaring the hell out of you. He is horror author Mike Thorne. He is a fellow Canadian, and his latest short story anthology, Peel Back and See, will be out via Journal Stone Publishing on October 29th. Mike was gracious enough to sit down with me for the better part of an hour to talk about his inspirations behind not only Peel Back and See, but his full-length novel, Shelter for the Damned, and his other short story anthology, Darkest Hours, and horror movies, his thesis, which is about John Carpenter's fantastic film Prince of Darkness, and so much more. Before that, though, I want to remind you that if you want ad-free episodes, and who doesn't, because ads suck, you can sign up for $2 a month over at patreon.com slash largely the truth, and not only do you get ad-free episodes, you get them a couple days early, and you get bonus conversations where available. Of course, last week's guest was Blue Pine Society founder and CEO Mark Semler, And in addition to the main episode, Mark and I did an entire other episode for patrons where we talked about, of all things, chicken wings. So, so if you want to hear that, it's again at patreon.com slash largely the truth and $2 a month gets you in the door. All right, enough salesmanship. It's time to put a call out to author Mike Thorne. My guest tonight is film scholar and horror novelist Mike Thorne. Mike's fiction has appeared in numerous magazines, anthologies, and podcasts, including Vesterian, Dark Moon Digest, The No Sleep Podcast, and Tales to Terrify. In February of this year, Journalstone Publishing released his first full-length novel, Shelter for the Damned, and swiftly followed it up with an expanded edition of his 2017 short story collection, Darkest Hours. Both releases were met with stellar reviews, and now, on October 29th, Journalstone is releasing his next anthology, The Darkly Powerful, Peel Back and See which I'm very much looking forward to talking about. Mike, welcome to Largely the Truth. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, Like I mentioned to you off air, I've only had, you're my third Canadian guest uh, on this show. And of course, I'm I'm also a Canadian author. So it's a a pleasure to speak to someone on the right side of the border. Right back at you. Even if we're, as we were saying, on opposite ends of the country, we do, uh, we're both Canadian. So I think to get further away from each other would involve swimming at this point. Yeah, and I don't want to do that. I'm no, not, uh, yeah, I'm not one for swimming. So nope, yeah. <laughs> right there with you. The ocean. My my wife loves the ocean, and I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't like boats. I don't like swimming. I am a land based mammal. See, I like to look at the ocean. It's very sure. spectacular to look at. But uh, yeah, don't don't yeah. don't put me in the water. 
being that you're a Canadian, there was something I was going to ask you because um, prior to this year, really, I haven't been for, I haven't been a reader for a very long time, and so I am totally ignorant about the current state of Canadian horror writing. And I'm kind of curious what your experience has been. Is that a, is that a really a thriving genre in Canada? Yeah, I think there are a lot of people in Canada doing interesting things within horror. It, it, oddly enough, I feel like most of the Canadian uh, poetry and literature I read is not within the horror genre. I was lucky enough to attend my uh, my graduate program for my master's with Joshua Whitehead, who's this incredible literary rock star. Uh, Neil Howell and Randy Schroeder are good friends of mine. They don't write within the horror genre. Okay. Um, Erin, Emily, and Vance was also in my master's program. She writes, I'd say she's close to horror. She writes kind of gothic adjacent poetry and fiction. Okay. Um, but then there's also a press called Seventh Terrace situated in Calgary, which is where I'm from. It's run by Sarah Johnson and Rob Bose. They're doing some really cool stuff. So yeah, there's, there's stuff happening. I, those are some of the people who I've met directly within the Canadian lit scene, I guess. Interesting, because we, we've I've noticed we've had some a, a surprising number of horror films come out of Canada. You know, there's uh, I mean the Wolf Cop series, the Boy films were shot here. I don't know that they're Canadian productions exactly, but they were shot here in Victoria. I think Astron Six is Canadian. Uh, the uh, the production company that produced Psycho Gorman and The Void and things like this. But uh, again, totally unaware of the Canadian where the Canadian horror fiction was at. So that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, and in terms of Canadian horror film, I mean, Ginger Snaps is a Canadian Of course, film. Yeah, absolutely. Masterpiece. Yeah, and David yes. Cronenberg, you know, one of the... Yeah, yeah. Brandon Cronenberg. Brandon Cronenberg, too. Yeah, he's doing... Yeah, I thought Possessor was interesting. I liked that. Possessor was a movie... You know, at the time, I wasn't crazy about it. But man, that film has lodged in my brain. I feel like I could use another viewing of it, too. I don't know if it all stuck for me on a first viewing either, but there was enough there that, that I could hold on to. And it felt very much like he was following in his father's footsteps. And of course, that in a way sets it up for maybe inevitable failure. Not to say it was a failure, but you of know, course. with a, a name like Cronenberg, that's quite the reputation to live up to. So Very much so. I know I, I listened to an interview after seeing the film uh, with Karim Hussein, the director of photography, and he talked so much about their use of vintage lenses and in-camera in -camera effects. I thought, okay, I really need to go back and I properly appreciate this. I think maybe I just didn't have the the material I needed. Yeah, that can happen sometimes too, you know. And like it's it's interesting like a, a viewing experience is subject to so many internal and external factors. There could be like some allergy you have to a specific point of subject matter or, you know, maybe you have a headache the day you go to see it or you just had an argument with somebody, you know. It's like of course. so sometimes just seeing a film one time, it's like it could just be that vacuum sealed moment that affected the viewing. That's it. Yeah. Uh, coming back from horror film and talking about you, it's been a, it's been a big year for you because you, you've published before, but 2021, you've got three releases out this year. That's, that's got to feel good. Yeah, it feels surreal. 2021 <laughs> has been nuts because I just start, I, I moved across the country this year. I started my PhD this year right. and I have three books uh, released in 2021. So it actually all does feel a little bit surreal. Um, it feels like, you know, once I've kind of eased one book into the world with the interviews and reviews and stuff like that, I start promoting the next one. So yeah, that's, that's some, that's an intense cycle. Yeah. It's been, it's been busy, but I'm, I'm grateful. It's a good kind of busy for sure. 
And what's the response been like? Again, I know the reviews have been great, uh, what I've read for uh, Shelter for the Damned and Darkest Hours, but just in terms of the experience and the feedback you're getting. Yeah, people have largely been merciful, you know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think um, Shelter for the Damned, uh, I think, maybe got a little bit more divisive feedback than than the other two books. Um, Interesting. Overall, it was probably, it was, I think people seemed to like it, but I think there seems to be some frustration with a protagonist who is not very likable. He's in some ways kind of inscrutable. And I think some readers maybe took issue with that because Mark is, uh, he's not really a conventional hero or protagonist, so to speak. He doesn't transform in any positive way. It's just basically someone who feels damned and descends. Right. And I, I wonder, too, if there's a little bit of that uh, unease because you've, you've set the horror, and this is something I appreciate about, about the book, you've set the horror in a very real world, a sort of a, a, a suburbia where you don't necessarily give the location. And I wonder if there's some discomfort in the readership in this idea that the people around them could be capable of that descent, of that kind of, uh, I, I hesitate to say damnation, but, but of the acts that you describe in the book and of sort of going as far off the map as he does. Yeah, that might well be the case. I mean, it's, although it has that kind of uh, cosmic horror element or weird fiction quality, it is also, yeah, it's, it's, it's it, I mean, it could maybe even be read, aside from a few scenes, as a piece of really dark realist fiction. Um, right. And, I, and I'm definitely inspired by uh, non-genre writers like Hubert Selby Jr., Joyce Carol Oates. Um, Jim Thompson, I guess, writes crime fiction, but there's nothing speculative in most of his work, and he's a big influence on that book. So I think that affected my approach. Yeah. And, and again, I, I particularly appreciated the way the cosmic horror slotted into that, uh, that real-life grounded setting, because I know Lovecraft is, uh, is an influence of yours, mm-hmm. but you know, Lovecraft never to me ever felt like it took place in a real world. And I don't know if that's the language or what, but it always, it's always sort of set in a stylized place where everyone talks like this, but, uh, you know, the, the suburbia in Shelter for the Damned feels like a very grounded setting. And so to then slip into that madness, I think is uh, doubly discomforting. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I think, I think that's something I often try to do. I think I'm interested in dissonances in fiction. Mm. So, um, that could be dissonances in tone, dissonances between what we might, might normally characterize as like, quote unquote, high art versus quote unquote, low art. I like right. to c- collide these kinds of things and see what happens, what kind of alchemy you can bring about if you close some of those divisions. Um, so I think and, and I think that just comes from like the, the kinds of reading and viewing that I like to do. I think that probably just bleeds into the work. Yeah, I mean, as a film writer, you've got a, from what I've read in your interviews and your, your, uh, your other publications, you've got a pretty wide breadth of uh, background to draw from in terms of what you watch. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, um, I try to view as widely as I can. I try to maintain curiosity, curiosity about film. I think part of what really drew me into my obsession with film, I, I started developing an interest in my teens, like mid-teens, and then I got a job at Blockbuster Video when I was 17, right. and we would get 10 free rentals a week. So at that point in time, I wasn't even necessarily fixated on horror. I had moved away from it a little bit at that point. So I was just devouring you know, everything I could find from specific directors. So I'd go through like every Bertolucci movie I could find, 
every Antonioni right. film I could find, every Orson Welles. I would just devour movies. That was I was a weird teenager, I guess. So, <laughs> yeah, well, the weird ones we make for interesting people, I think. So it's not so bad. <laughs> That's the hope. Yeah. Out of curiosity, within what you've seen previously, what you've seen recently, what disturbs you in terms of a film? Is there one film you can think, you know, I've seen this recently and it you know, obviously we talked about Possessor, that's stuck in your mind. Is there anything else that recently you've either thought has made you uncomfortable on some level or has just, again, kind of stuck in your brain and uh, left a mark? Usually it's um, documentaries that disturb me oh, more sure. than anything. Yeah, like I watched Don't Fuck With Cats recently. I've heard of it. I have not been able to bring myself to watch it. Yeah, that that's really upsetting. I think part of what made it so upsetting was um, the kind of uh, just distance from reality, the way this, this person was playing out a kind of fiction. His life was a fiction. And right. then there was just a dissociation from the monstrous acts he was committing. It was just a game for him. It was like a story he was playing out. Um, it actually felt a little bit like a Bret Easton Ellis novel, but played out in the real world. It was really um, unnerving to watch. I mean, that's a, that's a frightening thought to begin with. So uh, <laughs> Exactly, yeah, yeah. Bret, Bret is great, but I like him on the page. Yes, same here. Yeah, no, his, his, his work actually I find pretty um, distressing in a lot of ways too. I love it, but it gets under my skin. Going back to Shelter for the Damned, there was something I particularly found interesting in um, in some of the horror, in that horror typically uses the language of darkness. You know, that's off. It's just so easy to do that, right? Because of our natural fear of the dark. But what I really caught me about Shelter for the Damned was that when the threat arrives, it actually arrives in the light, which I, again I, I found uh, that has allowed it to, I think, to, for me, uh, to stick around longer than the darkness. Cause I mean, there's some great language around, uh, warmth as well, because again, usually it's like the cold chill, right? Uh, I mean, my, my other job is ghost stories. And so we always talk about the cold chill and the, the thing like this, but you, you managed to, um, to use this language that makes fluid heat, very unpleasant. And then the light. And I was, I was wondering what, what was your uh, inspiration behind that? Oh, that's, that's interesting. I feel like that's something no one has really asked me about, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's an apt observation. I wanted Shelter for the Damned to be set during the summer months, partially again, because I thought that would help anonymize and ambiguate the book as much as possible because winter differs a lot widely from place to place. Summers are, are more uh, anonymous. Summers are more, more or less the same from suburban environment to suburban environment. So right. that was part of the choice behind that. Um, but yeah, I also wanted to, again, play with um, this kind of dissonance. Warmth is something that is inviting and something we would uh, normally associate with comfort, much like maybe superficially the way we would look at these suburban homes, these suburban environments. Right. But I thought if you can kind of look what's what's occurring beneath that, that would be more disturbing to put it somewhat ineloquently <laughs> yeah yeah right no it's and again it, it works because it is so so unusual you know there is so much dissonance there and uh i think there was there was a couple times where i was just really noticing the language around around fluid warmth and, and it just felt instead of feeling yeah inviting it felt sticky and uh foul you know and it was uh, again very very effective thank you yeah i think that also probably is connected to 
some of what I was trying to play with around allegory or metaphor about um, addiction. So, uh, oh, you know, okay. yeah, the, maybe the somatic reaction you might have to um, any number of substances, whether it be alcohol or opiates or um, even, you know, some psychoactive drugs, you'll get that kind of warm, tingly feeling in your body. Um, sure. So, yeah, I wanted to play with that, too, that there's this somatic connection to the shack itself for for Mark, because the book is is in many ways about addiction, too. So that, I was definitely playing with that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I know at least one of the characters' fathers is uh, he's an alcoholic. And that is, you know, that's dwelt upon and, uh, yeah, again, very, very effective because the domestic situations were very believable. So oh, that, uh, you. you know, as, as someone who grew up around alcoholics, yeah, that, that very much, uh, that very much rang true. So jumping forward, there's one or two things I want to touch on still with, with Shelter for the Damned, but I, I want to jump forward to Peel Back and See, because obviously that's, that's the new one coming out. And there are elements which I think will allow us to revisit those things. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah. So Peel Back and See is a collection of short stories that was written primarily between the years 2017 and 2021, with a couple okay. exceptions. Um, actually, the bulk of them between 2018 and 2021, which, as as it happens, were the most personally taxing um, and transformative, and I don't use this word lightly, but traumatizing years of my life. And I think that bled into the fiction. So Peel Back and See, I think, is is maybe my most nakedly personal book. I think all of my books are very personal. But in this case, I felt like I was maybe using less of the armature of genre and just dealing more explicitly with the discomfort and pain at the heart of the stories. So I think Darkest Hours is like it's it, like I said, it's also very personal, but it's also just drenched in genre references. It's also about my love of horror and heavy metal. And, and I feel like Peel right. Back and See is maybe a little less lighter on that stuff and and closer to the bone is the metaphor I keep using. Right. I know that there was a line in the first story, Havoc, and I, Havoc was one of my favorite stories. I won't give anything away to our listeners, but very, very effective stuff because I think it plays with, um, it plays with a topic I find really interesting. And I talked about this a little bit with a previous guest, uh, the author, James Kennedy. We were talking about his book, Dare to Know, because Dare to Know kind of plays with the legends we have around things like video games, these urban legends. And I felt like Havoc touched on this, this notion that we have of, of internet urban legends and this maybe innate distrust we have of the internet anyways, and how easy it is to believe that it, it can connect us to something uh, truly unnatural. And, you know, I, I hesitate to say evil because the, 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 you know, the uh, thing described in Havoc is almost a, a force of, like Lovecraft, it's a force of nature more than it is evil. Yes. But um, that was, again, very, very, very striking. But there was a line in there I particularly found uh, that really struck me, and I've got it here. Depression felt more like a consumptive physical disorder than anything like a mental state. And, dude, I cannot think of a better description of depression than that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I've, I feel like that's, that's so... Uh, I feel like that's less frequently discussed when we talk about depression is what it does to the body. Um, yeah. you know, I, I found during my worst periods of, um, chronic depression, I like, I can't move, you know, my whole, mm -hmm. you wake up and you feel like you were beaten up overnight. It's, it's shocking how somatic, um, depression can be. So I, I wanted to foreground that. Yeah. And I, I believe I read somewhere that at least part of that story was influenced by a sleep paralysis experience you had. Is that correct? 
Yes. Yeah. Um, I had a really vivid sleep paralysis episode when I, I was on a new medication and I was having these extremely vivid dreams, unlike any I'd ever had, but they were always geographically and spatially um, removed from, you know, my, my, my actual space. Right. But this one dream, I didn't even know it was a dream until a while later I was in my bedroom. Yeah. And I saw it's, it's still, it's, it's weird to talk about because it's like, well, was that a dream? But the overhead light fixture in my bedroom started to kind of sag and I could see the outline of something inside of it. And it sagged and sagged until it fell off and clattered on the floor. And this inky black thing fell onto the bed. It was heavy. Oh. And I like, felt it at my feet. Yeah. And it started crawling up my leg. Um, and I jolted awake and I still felt like it was there in some way. Um, and that, that it was horrifying and awful, but as a horror writer, I was like, Oh, uh, you know, I can maybe do something with that. Yes. <laughs> the idea of these entities that can live maybe in our um, electrical wiring or something like that. So the story kind of started there. Yeah. Uh, again, very, very effective story. And that's, Fucking awful. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I, I've had sleep paralysis, but never, never like that. And I mean, certainly, you know, uh, my other podcast, the ghost story guys, you know, we tell ostensibly true stories of the paranormal and, um, you know, obviously we get a lot of sleep paralysis, but I've never, I've never heard one like that. So that is, that's one for the books, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, I got to make something out of this. So <laughs> yeah. Pardon me. Another story that jumped out at me, and this is actually, um, something that I think goes all the way back to your thesis in Minnie McDonough Manor, you talk about the notion of mimicry and mm-hmm. that I've always found that particularly frightening. You know, this idea that, um, yeah, the, the person you're talking to may not be the person you think you're talking to the person they're presenting as. And I suppose that is in a way, I mean, that's obviously, uh, we can trace that back to depression in a way, because I know I've, I've been told, uh, by a good friend of mine that, um, you seem calm, but at the same time, she said, like, this is actually when I worry about you the most because I know you seem calm, but you're not thinking properly. So was that some of that inspiration? No, I think that's um, a really astute observation. Um, I don't know how conscious I always am of it, but I think that's something that is always at work in my fiction. I think I'm actually, I, I, I love people and I try my best to be a compassionate and empathetic, but people also terrify me and social situations Mm. terrify me. And I feel, yeah, it's, I I have, um, I'd say fairly intense social anxiety. Um, and I think sometimes that's rooted in distrust based on past experiences. Um, yeah. And I think this informs one of the stories in fear and grace as well, which is a story basically, um, grounded in this experience of, um, a public facing nature of a conversation. So someone else sitting in a bar might observe maybe that there's something a little bit odd in this exchange. And then there's the right. interior experience of the exchange where the people are aware of this traumatic history that they, that they share between them. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that is something that, that, uh, persistently interests me. Um, and, and perhaps that's like flagged in the title peel back and see if you, if you look sure. past the veneer of external, appearance and engagement. You find something kind of ugly and and scary a lot of the time. Absolutely. I know it very much reminded me of an experience I had, and it's a a totally, you know, in my head experience. But uh, one night, you know, my wife called me from the bedroom. We we live in an apartment and uh, she was having a migraine. So she was asking if I could bring her one of her migraine tablets. 
But when I walked into the bedroom, the light was off. And there was this moment of a very intense unreality where it was her voice calling me from the dark. And I actually told her, I said, I need you to close your eyes and I'm going to turn on the light. And then I got to turn the light back off because I had to see her. I, as mm. kooky as it sounds, maybe just too many horror movies, but I could, I, there was no way I was walking into the darkness following this voice of someone who sounded like my wife, just in case. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, horrors, horror does play on that fear. I guess you were talking earlier about like familiarity and warmth and, and something horrifying underneath that. That's, I guess, the most terrifying possible thing. Uh, since we're on the subject, I'd like to take a little bit of a digression because you mentioned in your thesis that uh, John Carpenter, in, of course, your thesis is about um, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. You mentioned specifically there's a scene where the character of Wyndham appears, but you hear him before you see him. And it establishes this, uh, this sense of unease because he's clearly not the same person, but you know, he's trying to entice the other character, again, I can't remember the name, but the other character into, into responding to him as though he were. And uh, again, love that scene. And I just love to talk a little bit about your enthusiasm for John Carpenter's work before we move forward. Yeah. Um, huge influence, obviously, and just an enormous figure in horror. I guess one of the things that interests me most about Prince of Darkness is um, this crux that I'm looking at in my thesis, which is the relationship between fear and knowledge. Right. Um, and I love the idea of this this canister at the center of the film, which is kind of literalized as like the, the manifestation of Satan. But um, I like the idea of this object of unknowable evil that right. um, is not it's not containable within our knowledge systems. So they're, they're basically trying to throw science at it. They're trying to throw mathematics at it, religion, philosophy, and it all just kind of falls away in the face of this, um, this force, this entity. Uh, and I feel like that is kind of um, a core idea at work in, in most of Carpenter's filmography. I just think it's beautifully visualized in that movie. There was also something I, I was, again, reading your thesis, it occurred to me that something that really I find disturbing about Prince of Darkness and, and listeners, if you haven't seen John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, I mean, I can't imagine that you haven't, but just in case you haven't, please go watch it immediately. Pause, pause this, go watch it. We'll still be here when you get back. But the dream sequences being beamed back to the main characters from 1999, something always stuck with me about that from the time I watched it as a teenager. Cause when I was a teenager, I didn't, again, I, sometimes this happens. I didn't get it. I was looking for Halloween. I was looking for jump scares. And, you know, sort of this, these deeper questions just didn't really hit me the way they would later in life. But the, the, the dream sequences always haunted me. And I think, again, reading your thesis, I think I figured out why. I think it's because, and I think this actually loops back to Shelter for the Damned. I think it's because we like to think that the future will be better. Yeah. And the notion that the future is reaching back to us and asking for our help is a fucking terrifying thought, despite the fact that the actions we, we perform now create the future, you know, it's to be told directly, like things have already gone wrong. We need you to do better. That's, that's a, a chilling thing. And, yeah. you know, going back to shelter for the damned, there was a scene where the main character, Mike, you know, his dad, uh, like physically assaults him. Mm -hmm. And I think we have this notion that, you know, as children, the adults have it figured out. You know, the people, the, the people around us who are guiding our life, you know, I think most people, most people who have, you know, reasonably 
level childhood, they don't, they don't get around to thinking of their parents as fallible people until later in life when they sort of maybe have kids themselves and, and start to see. So I think there's this unsettling notion that the adults don't have an answer. Yes. And so that, again, the, the parallel there really jumped out at me. Yeah, I definitely think that's part of what's um, scary and in a way sad about that novel is that I think the adults in Mark's life look at him um, and feel kind of clueless. They don't know, you know, like what what is it that's that's wrong with this kid and, and how do we how do we fix it? How do we make it better? Um, and you do see these ruptures, particularly in his dad's reaction, where he thinks like maybe I can just like literally shake it out of him. So another story, and I promise I'm not going to go through every single story, uh, because really, folks, you want to read this one for yourself. But one that really jumped out at me was um, Offer to the Adversary, hmm. which is about, um, we'll say, a, a painting. I don't want to say a cursed painting, but it's, it's a, a painting which is notorious. And it really reminded me of, of the time I visited the Rothko Chapel in Houston, because I'd, I'd heard about Rothko. And I'd heard about, you know, the chapel and all this stuff. And it just happened that I was passing through the city, uh, on a road trip with a friend and he suggested we go check it out. But being in that space, you know, uh, observing that, that artwork in that space in the intended, um, conditions was actually a very intense experience, uh, which I was not expecting. And I walked away from that with a real, I mean, I've always been a fan of art, but that was probably the most visceral experience with art I've I'd ever had, which again was completely unexpected. And I'm curious, what kind of, have you had art that has provoked you in that way? Is that part of the inspiration behind Offer to the Adversary? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a, a really uh, interesting thing to think about. I think um, part of what was happening in Offer to the Adversary, along with a few other stories in um, Peel Back and See, is I was writing from the perspective of someone in lockdown, so kind of lost in screens in a way. Oh, interesting. So I think that's part of maybe what was happening in the story was this idea of becoming kind of, yeah, subsumed by screens, subsumed by these surfaces that we're staring at all day long. Oh, okay. But it was also, uh, I, was, I was invited to write something for an anthology dedicated to the Italian horror filmmaker Lucio Fulci. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, so this this was my contribution to that anthology, and I, I was thinking through um, the way his films deal with seeing um, and his obsession with eye mutilation, and um, <laughs> yes, with, and and also the role of painting in uh, one of his masterpieces, the film The Beyond from 1981. So I think those things were at work, but also to answer your question, I think I, I have had something like that experience. I visited the National Gallery in uh, London a few years ago. Right. And weirdly enough, I remember feeling kind of disoriented and almost dizzy after looking at some of J.M.W. Turner's paintings. Um, something okay. about the way he paints seascapes is really um, powerful. So I wanted to play with that and offer to the advers adversary as well, the, the kind of like queasy aquatic feeling she gets when she's in that museum alone surveying the painting. Interesting. It, it managed to make, uh, just as Shelter for the Damned managed to make white intimidating. Uh, I found that offered to the adversary and there was another story. I can't remember which, but they managed to make orange mm -hmm. quite intimidating, quite um, unsettling. Cause it, it, that again, that imagery really, really has stayed with me. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I wanted to play out um kind of hallucinatory encounter with the painting. Um, and again, the story plays with these slippages between hallucination and reality, dreams and reality. So I wanted to 
capture as much of her disoriented state as I could and, and color and sound are good ways of doing that. So speaking of disorientation, uh, again, something that's, that's come up a number of times in the book, particularly in the story. And I have to check the name because it has gone from my brain. Uh, the story entropy major, pardon me, entropy major, um, was again, I, I love space horror, you know, of, uh, event horizon is one of my favorite films mm. and that story and as well as several others and shelter for the damned as well deal with this this notion of the loss of the physical the loss of the the physical self sort of like an imprisonment in the mind mm-hmm. without effect on the physical world i'm curious wh- where does that come from for you is that a is that a fear or is that just a notion that you're particularly interested in i think that concept is frankly probably inspired in some way by my one very disturbing experience with uh, Salvia. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah. So I, I found um, there was this experience of, of radical disembodiment, radical dissociation mm. from self, but still being conscious. Um, right. So this consciousness that you are nothing, there is no you, and yet there's still this psychic something suspended in all right. of the the tumult of existence. And uh, it, it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying, and, and kind of exceeds the boundaries of language. But it's something I try to, um, I've tried a few times to replicate that sensation in fiction, because to me, it's one of the most sublimely, in a way, horrifying experiences I've ever had. So yeah, I think that's no doubt, probably part of where it comes, comes from, to be honest. Interesting. Yeah. I know I've read, because uh, I've, I've only had one Salvia experience myself, and it was a very, very long time ago, and it was not nearly as intense as something like that, you know, it, but I, I did some reading afterwards. And one story that I found uh, really kind of horrifying was this fellow, he smoked a Salvia, he exhaled, and he was a piece of luggage underneath someone's, like in the, basically in this, the closet underneath someone's stairs. Wow. And yeah. he was that thing for a very long time. You know, by his, by his, uh, his perception. Yes. And there was, there was another one where a, a guy, uh, and I swear I'm not making this up, you know, he exhaled and, and his experience began and he was a bedspread in the spare room of, of an elderly lady's house. Yeah. And he was that thing for, again, by his perception years to the point where he lost his sense of himself as self. Yes. And so when he returned, it was like. Uh, an awakening. It was, it was, uh, you know, it was almost as frightening as when he became the bedspread. And I, again, I, I cannot imagine like that is a, it seems prosaic, but it's, it's horrifying. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's indescribable. And it, I, I like that you kept bringing up this idea of perception of time because the, the trip only lasts what, like less than 10 minutes. So yeah. people might think that, you know, some bored kids in suburbia back when you could like buy it at fucking 7-Eleven or whatever, <laughs> they're like, oh, it's fine. It'll just be 10 minutes. It'll be fun. But the concept of time ceases to have the same meaning when you're under the influence of that substance. So that's something that's always frightened me about substance, like the use of those kinds of substances, because, you know, I, I am so protective of my mind. Mm-hmm. And the notion of, of time losing meaning like that, you know, I, uh, like I, I microdose now I've been microdosing psilocybin for anxiety and depression mm-hmm. since February of this year. And I found that hugely productive, very, very helpful. But the notion, um, a friend of mine participated in a study uh, at Columbia 
with much like macro dosing, mm -hmm. but with a guide, you know, with a, a, a doctor there to kind of guide you through the experience. And th even with someone there sort of performing that shamanic role, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the deeper trip and just yeah. uh, beca because of that loss of that loss of perception, that scalability of time that just terrifies me. I'm right there with you. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to fuck with that. <laughs> Definitely Fair. not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of research happening in that world. Um, and I, I've, I've listened to, um, what's that guy's name? Michael Pollan and, and others okay. talking about some of that research going on. And it's, yeah, it's compelling. It's interesting stuff, but I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm like, I don't think I have the, the fortitude to, uh, <laughs> to risk that. So a couple of cool questions. We'll let you get back to the world. But, uh, I was curious about this, the, the, uh, story of the voiding mm. because the voiding is, is a sort of a dark, very dark take on the world of publishing. Again, just depression, uh, and, and depression seeping into and kind of corrupting the creative process. So this feeling of, yeah, of, of, um, futility of, helplessness feeling like what what is the point of any of this why what why am i why am i writing why have i written anything and what is the what is the actual use of anything i've i have written and put into the world is there any is there right. any use in this process at all so i think that story again f sees me as a writer in a dark place and there's kind of a, an internal contradiction in that story writing my way through the inability to write. I had periods of intense writer's block. Oh, okay. Debilitating writer's block. Again, associated with just a really bad depression. Um, right. And so that was, I guess, my, my, my unconscious self saying, well, you need to write even if your disorder is telling you you can't write and that there's no point to write. So it's, I guess the story is built of contradictions in that way. And that's an inspirational point because I know we have writers who listen to the show and I know that writer's block and, and depression can be huge, huge barriers and, and often, you know, career ending barriers Yeah. You know, before you get very far at all, or, you know, maybe halfway through a project and just, you know, the ennui kind of gets you and you, you just move on. Yeah. Often there's this, um, kind of, uh, almost cruel optimism or positivism in writer circles where people say, there's no such thing as writer's block. You mm. just have to keep writing. That's like, well, that's great for you if that's what works, but also let's have compassion for the fact that there are, you know, real material circumstances that can make it difficult for people to do that. So I think, I think that comes from good, a place of good intentions, but I think it can be quite harmful for, um, people who, who actually find themselves in places where they just can't, they can't do it. They can't get the words out. And I think, yeah, so that's, that's a reality that I maybe wanted to explore. It's incredible that you've managed to write some of these stories during the pandemic, because I've, I've heard that, um, for example, in film, I've heard that a lot of the scripts that came from the pandemic were actually quite bad. You know, a lot of people sort of thought, aha, I've got this opportunity now all this time not really accounting for the fact that, that the trauma of the moment was really affecting their process. Um, so it's, again, it's, it's incredible that you managed to write these stories or some of these stories under those conditions because they, they are uniformly good. There's no sense of that. I mean, certainly you can tell perhaps the pandemic has informed the themes, but there's no sense of that, um, of, of that feeling of that, oh, Jesus, this is just someone trying to get words out while the world is crumbling around them. 
Thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciate that. I, I definitely didn't want to write pandemic stories, so to speak. I was right. fine with the pandemic bleeding into the fiction because it was inevitably going to, but I didn't want to write like, here is my lockdown story. If it organically materialized in the fiction, fine. But I think there's probably going to be a fair bit of kind of strained pandemic fiction out of the world. And thankfully for a couple of these stories, I had deadlines. I had to write to meet deadlines. Uh, okay. And I think that helped me, especially, you know, pandemic aside. And there's, you know, there's no overstating how big of an impact that had on everybody. Although I'm fairly privileged in the sense that I, I had shelter and things like that. But Likewise. Yeah. Like I, I, I am speaking from, from a definitely a position of privilege and I don't want to sound like a victim, but pandemic aside, I, I, I was going through some intense personal traumas kind of leading up to the pandemic. So I felt like I had to find a way to, to still express myself creatively. It was like sure. a lifeline in a sense. So absolutely. Yeah. As we're winding down, I, I have two things I wanted to ask you. We've talked a lot today about not only uh, written horror, but, but horror on film. And there was something that was said in, in, I believe it was Shelter for the Damned. And I think one character said to another, uh, have you never seen a fucking horror movie? <laughs> and I'm curious as to your thoughts on this. Is it possible to write horror anymore in which the characters are unaware of the genre? Because it's, it's not really fringe anymore. Like the horror genre is really kind of having a moment, I think. And it's, mm -hmm. it's really much more mainstream than it used to be. So is it possible to write characters in either film or, or you know, in, in prose who are unaware of that legacy? Or do, do, we, do we have to incorporate it at some point? What do you think? That's a really, really interesting thing to unpack. I reflect often that horror cinema, especially mainstream American horror cinema, still has not escaped from under the shadow of Scream, which I think is a masterpiece. Right. Like I think Wes sure. Craven and Kevin Williamson are geniuses and, and a lot of great movies have followed in that wake. Like Urban Legend, I think is also incredible. And there are a few oh, others. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's sapped of the real richness of that material. I think sometimes we get to a place where like, where we're very wink, wink, nudge, nudge about genre. Right. And I don't ever want to veer into that place. And I think maybe we, we lean too much on that in this world in which we're saturated with genre, in which we're right. so familiar with the tropes and everything. So I think my effort as a writer is to pay homage and draw on my knowledge of genre while also giving respect to it and revering it. So, you know, looking at the foundations, what is it at the foundation of horror that affords me as a creator the ability to explore painful truths. And I think that will never go away. So that's why we still go to horror. That's why horror is so fundamental to how we express ourselves. On a literal level, can you write fiction which the characters aren't aware of horror? I mean, you could skirt around it. I think there are a lot of stories in Peel Back and See where the characters aren't the types of people who might tend to watch horror movies or read horror fiction. Right. So I think it depends on the, the, the specific story world that you're dealing with. But yeah, I think, I think you can go back to the basis of horror without all of this kind of irony and self-awareness that I think sometimes gets in the way of what horror is and does. That's my, my thoughts anyway. 
Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I know uh, there's a podcast I listen. Pardon me. There's a podcast I listen to where the 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 hosts are filmmakers, and one of the things they talk about being frustrated with is when people will name characters in their scripts or in their stories very clearly after famous. You know, they're very famous, very obvious homages, mm-hmm. and they talk about how that really can affect the credibility of a piece because it's one thing to borrow a name that might be a, a subtle homage, but when you've got characters running around, you know, Dr. Carpenter and Dr. Craven and <laughs> things like this, you know, it, it can get a little bit, uh, a, a little bit hammy and really, really pull you out of the story. Yeah. There's been a lot of that. I think I maybe um, played with that a little bit in shelter for the damned in that I named the two uh, police officers after the book's biggest influences. So there's officer Selby and officer Thompson but maybe as like, oh, I can get away with it because they're not horror writers. That's um, it. I mean, I've read Jim Thompson and I, I didn't make the connection. So okay. it's, it's, it's subtle enough that it's, it, it works, you know, it, and that, that's the way I, I think it, it needs to be done, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Folded in more organically. I mean, there have been some ways I've seen it done where it's fun, like in Final Destination, there are some pretty overt ones, but I think it depends on the context of the, of the project itself. Oh, Sure. Again, I think that's an example where the self-awareness is is folded into the material in a very organic and and rich way. So like the, even yeah. just the conceit of having death itself as the slasher villain, right away you're dealing with some like high high level conceptual stuff. Um, yeah. So yeah, that would be one of the exceptions in terms of uh, that's I'd say excellent self-aware horror. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So my last question is uh, just, you mentioned something in the notes for Peel Back and See. I think it's for Minnie McDonough Manor. You mentioned the Museum of Fear and Wonder in rural Alberta. I wondered, I've never heard of it. I wonder if you just tell us a little bit about that quick. Yeah, that's an incredible place. I remember one day, I I can't remember what I was doing, um, but my friend Steph called me and she said, do you have plans today? And being an introvert, I was like, well, I sort of uh, uh, just grumbled something. She's like, well, whatever it is, like, cancel it. You you know, I got <laughs> tickets to the Museum of Fear and Wonder. You have to book months in advance. Uh, oh, and I wow. have an in today. So I was like, okay. So I ended up going with her and her husband, Tom. Um, and you, you really do have to drive out into this rural environment. I think we almost missed it. It's, it's like kind of off this rural road. Okay. And it's in a, a repurposed old army barracks. I believe the person who owns uh, the museum, I think he might live in that space. Oh. Um, but it's just populated solely with objects that have emotionally charged histories that oh. um, are associated with dark pasts in some sense. So everything from like wax statues of, um, I think it was Ted Bundy to... Uh, these dolls who have developed something like, I guess we were talking about earlier about like online urban legends. So there was one doll. I remember several YouTubers had purchased it and, and documented the experience of their lives falling apart when they owned this doll. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're just in a space full of these objects. The the person who curates and owns the space tells you the story of every object as you walk through um, and I definitely felt like a palpable dark energy in that space. Um, Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And there was one particular dollhouse. As I recall, the theory was that it was kind of decaying in tandem with the process of decay of the actual house. So the shingles on the dollhouse were kind of falling apart in, in the same manner that the actual 
real oh, shingles okay. were. Yeah, so interesting. That's part of where Minnie McDonough Manor came from. I got to get out there. You got to see it. Yeah, I don't know what they're doing with the pandemic. They might still be, but yeah, definitely check it out and book as far in advance as you can. It's uh, very, very much, and it's it's free. I think it's still free. Um, because oh, okay, wow. Yeah, he looks at it as you know it it, it could potentially. Um, you know, if you look at some kind of sentience in these objects, it's like dis- disrespectful to them to take payment to have them seen like their sideshow objects or something. So, Fascinating. Yeah, it's really cool. Very cool. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time today. I've really enjoyed our conversation, really enjoyed your books. I've still got Darkest Hours to read yet. I'm looking forward to that. Where can everyone find you online? I am on Twitter at Mike Thorne Writes and Instagram, same handle. Uh, my website is MikeThorneWrites.com. I'm also lurking on Facebook and Letterboxd and Goodreads. So I'm all over this uh, dark, weird, nasty place we call the internet. I'm around. <laughs> yeah. So it, it is unavoidable. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Necessary evil. Well, my guest has been Mike Thorne, author of the upcoming book, Peel Back and See from Journal Stone Publishing. You can find links to uh, where you can pick up your copy in the show notes. Folks, I recommend you read it. If you're in horror fiction, you do not want to miss out. Mike, thanks so much for being here, man. Thank you so much for having me, Brandon. I really appreciate it. And that's going to do it. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Peel Back and See. You can pre-order that from Journalstone Publishing. I'll put a link in the show notes. You can also get it from Amazon, but uh, hey, support small business, right? What's a couple extra bucks in shipping? I mean, it might not even be a couple extra bucks in shipping. I don't know. I bought digital editions, but uh, you know what I mean. Support small business, folks. It pays back huge dividends. Trust me. Thanks again to my guest, author Mike Thorne, for taking the time. It was great getting to talk to him about not only his books, but movies and all kinds of other stuff. And if you want to hear Mike talk more about horror, he did a two-hour-long live stream on YouTube with director and composer Jamie Blanks. It is a great chat, and I will link that in the show notes as well. Thanks also to my good friend Peter Kursoff of Pizanta Music for my fabulous theme song. You can find more from him at nightharvestrecordings.com or by searching for Pizanta Music wherever you get your tunes. Finally, thank you for listening. Without you folks, well, there wouldn't be much point. Alright. Until next time, I hope the night takes you to the same strange and wonderful places it takes me. And remember, if you're not sure what comes next, Put a call out into the dark. You never know who's going to pick up. I'll see you next time.